good evening, little masters, and welcome to episode 137 of the Prancing Pony Podcast, where today, well, we're back in the studio after a little there and back again of our own. Oh, and it was great, wasn't it? I mean, oh, yeah. the travel accommodations were comfortable, Birmingham is a lovely city, and the dragon mm-hmm. there is truly as great as tales say. Truly, songs and tales fall utterly short of the reality. Truly. But go ahead and pull up a bench in the common room, folks, and we'll be right there. I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the Man of the West, the Clue Finder, the Web Cutter, the Stinging Fly, (laughs) Uh, Alan Sisto. Well, we'd better stop the Hobbit references, Sean, or people are going to think they've downloaded the wrong show. Well, well, they may have downloaded the wrong show, actually. Well, that's Folks, true, yeah. I think the podcast you're looking for is The Tolkien Professor. That's <laughs> hey, C-O-L-K-I. Hey, hey, uh, uh, well, before we lose everybody out there, <laughs> welcome back to Season 4, folks, the Prancing Pony Podcast. Today, we are going to jump back into The Lord of the Rings by taking a quick look back at Book 1. Now, I think everybody listening knows the story pretty well, so we don't have to recap the plot, but right. we do want to spend a little bit of time reviewing some of the major themes we saw last season. Yeah, and then after we do that, we'll take a look ahead to book two, and we'll talk about some of the major themes and other great moments that we look forward uh-huh. to seeing this season. Right. But before we do that, Alan and I want to do something a little bit different for our intro segment today. And now for something completely different. Oh, well uh, done. Oh, well, you know. You said it. Right over the plate, you know? Absolutely. Knock that one out of the park if I can. Folks, we do hope that all of you listened to our last episode, recorded live at Tolkien 2019 in Birmingham, the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Tolkien Society. And let me just say that if you didn't listen to our last episode, you should. Oh, yeah, you really should. I mean, we had a chance to interview several of the event's special guests, including John Garth, Brian Sibley, Demetra Femi, Ted Naismith, and we yep. even had a chance to talk to Bill Fliss again, mm-hmm. uh, and we got to meet Richard Medrington, the man behind oh, yeah. the One Man Leaf by Niggle show. The fantastic One Man uh, Leaf by Niggle show, I should say. Absolutely incredible, yep. and we'll be talking about that again in just a moment, yeah, I'm sure. But seriously, folks, do yourself a favor and go listen to that episode if you haven't yet. Mm-hmm. But today, since this is our first regular format podcast of the new season, we did want to take some time here in the beginning of the show to, to talk about the event and talk about yeah. some of our experiences there. Yeah. So so the way we're, we're going to do this is, Alan, I've got a few questions here that I'd like to ask you and then have you ask me the same questions. Okay. You know, let's take a moment to remember the event and, you know, talk about some of our favorite moments and things like that. Absolutely. I think it's a great idea. So I guess the first question, just for, for sake of grounding, uh, so how sure. many moots have you been to now? How many? Uh, which let's ones? see. Well, you know, the thing is, the funny thing is, is I didn't really go to Moots when I was younger because I didn't know about them. Mm-hmm. I ended up going to the the OneRing.net line parties when the movies came out and to the Oscar oh, yeah. parties as well. But that's really not the same thing. Uh, an actual Moot, an actual gathering of book fans and, you know, people talking, presenting papers and things like that. Uh, the first one I went to would have been Myth Moot last June. So Myth Moot, Oxen Moot. Yeah. Text Moot, and now Tolkien 2019, so four. Okay. So what about you, Sean? Which ones have you been to and how many? Three of the four you just named, actually. I've been <laughs> I've, I've been going to cons for a long time. I mean, I've been yeah, to- Yeah, you know, I've gone to cons too, comic Comic cons conventions and, and science fiction conventions and things. Right. But for even though I've been a Tolkien fan for a long time, I, I've only started going to Tolkien-focused or partly Tolkien-focused moots since we started yeah. doing this podcast. So yeah, it was- it was three of the ones you mentioned, MythMoot 5 in Virginia, uh, that was last year, uh, TexMoot 2019, that was just this mm-hmm. past January, and then, yeah, Tolkien 2019. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this then. So knowing the, the few moots you've been to, what made this one different? 
simply the scale. Uh, this was such a, a large event in terms of the number of attendees, the number of, of talks and events to go to, the number of, of really big name guests that were there. Yeah. The, the variety and number of evening activities, entertainments that we all have. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, so the scale and scope of it was was what made this one particularly different. What a, Same opinion yeah. for you, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, also for me, you know, you went to Oxenmoot last year. I hadn't gone to yeah. that. So this was the first one that I'd oh, ever been to yeah. in England. Yeah. And yeah. and so that was that was very different, you know, because that would be. especially because it was in Birmingham, and I'm sure, you know, Oxenmoot was the same way. You know, that's a place that has a connection directly to Tolkien. Yeah. Yeah, it was fantastic in Oxford last year for that exact reason. I, I'm yeah. I'm sure, yeah. And and in Birmingham, even though, you know, we're in this hotel and we're downtown and you know, there there aren't many signs that Tolkien was ever there, you know, uh, immediately <laughs> no. around you. But but still, there was that connection and, and that just made it feel, um, I don't know, that just made it feel a little bit more special. It yeah, was also the first one I'd been to that was handled by the Tolkien Society, which meant that yeah. there were a lot of new people for me to meet. Yeah. You know, after doing after doing Mythmoot and then Texmoot, you know, the Signum yeah. folks, uh, the Signum and Mythgard folks who put those on, they're like old friends now. Right, um, right. Tolkien Society is like a whole new group of people. And so that was <laughs> that was new to me. And like you said, just bigger. I mean, I, I yeah. think what I heard Sean Gunner say a couple of times was 550 people. Yeah, 550 people from something like 24 different countries. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that's huge. I think most of the- Staggering, you know, really. Most yeah. of the ones that, you know, that, that I'd been to before had been, you know, in the- Maybe 100 to 200 range. Um, I, so think, I think Mythmoot might have been 250 or so. I mean, yeah, uh, maybe about that. Textmoot yeah. was probably just about 100 and maybe 125, something th- like that. I think so, yeah. Yeah. So 550 was pretty big and, um, and yeah. you felt it. You know, there's just, you really there are did. people everywhere and there's just so much going on. So much to do. So what were you expecting out of this, uh, out of this particular moot? Well, since it was the first moot that I'd been to overseas, I mean, I was expecting and looking forward to meeting people. On that side of the pond, you know, there are a lot of folks that we've talked to listeners. Yes, but not just listeners, just people, also people in Facebook groups and people I know from Twitter and things like that who are in the UK or Ireland or Germany or elsewhere. Um, And, you know, in a lot of cases, these are people that I've been talking to online for years, but I just never had a chance to to meet in person before. So that I was really looking forward to that. And uh, I absolutely was not disappointed. That was yeah. pretty awesome. I was about to ask that. And how did the reality match your yeah. expectations or did it did it let you down? But yeah. clearly not. No, it, it, it totally did not. I mean, the other thing I was expecting was just a lot of great high profile talks with some of the biggest names in yeah. Tolkien studies. I mean, well, and um, that's again, a disappoint and, either, did it? <laughs> and and we've gotten a chance to meet some big names before uh, mm-hmm. at the at yeah. the moots here in the States. Um, but this was just it was just more of them in one place. And and I was yeah. I was kind of expecting to be overwhelmed in the best way possible. And we were, weren't we? <laughs> yeah. Don't you think? I mean, yeah. what oh, about yeah, you? Absolutely. I mean, was, was there any other particular expectation you had? Or You know, I actually had just about the same expectations you did. I was really looking forward to meeting a bunch of our listeners, especially our European listeners. It was, I'd had such a fun time doing that at MythMoot, getting to know so many people that we'd uh, already connected with. It was a little different then because so many people there had not heard of the show. I remember when we said, you know, show of hands, who here listens to the show? And like 10% of the people raised their hands. Oh, right. Yeah. I remember commenting on what Mm -hmm. good taste they must have had. But, when (laughs) you know, we're a little bit more known now. And so there were a few more people that knew about us. uh, And 
it was just, it was such a, a wonderful opportunity to meet so many of these listeners. Like you said, that we've been talking to for years, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, Marcel or, or, or mm -hmm. Becky or any of these other people that we've been talking yeah. to online for ages. Yeah. Uh, Sue and, and Ian and all these people yeah. that we've just for a long time known, but haven't known. Yeah. And what a neat opportunity it was to actually get to meet them. But yeah, yeah, the expectations were high, but they definitely met. Definitely met my expectations. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they totally did. It was yeah. exceeded. Yeah. I mean, because it, it was overwhelming, but it was overwhelming in a great mm -hmm. way. I mean, yeah, absolutely. There was there was so much stuff to do. Yeah. I don't think I expected to have to make quite so many difficult choices. Oh, no, that for sure. Am I going to go to this talk or am I going to go to that talk or am I going to get or am I going to get my fifth I, hour of sleep? Yeah, because I have to <laughs> because I have to get on a stage and perform later. on. Right. Exactly. You know? I have to do our episode in two hours. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That those I mean, there's so many tough choices because there was just stuff going on. So nonstop. much to do nonstop and into the and night. Even, so you would, even, you would stay evenings, up until yeah. midnight or 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. Just or talking later. And, and, yeah, I mean, or later. Yeah, I was trying to keep us looking somewhat reasonable. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I think I shut down the bar at three in the morning one night. Yeah. Well, then there was going going back to the hotel room and then, you know, calling my family because they were right, six hours right. behind. So my kids were just going to bed. Yeah, um, I know. That's, well, maybe not the nights we came home at two or, two or three. Well, no, three in the morning. Um, that might be a little bit rough. But yeah. Yeah. But yeah, and there was just so much to do in the evenings and during the day. And yeah, I think the thing that really surprised me was just how much there was going on that wasn't even part of the program. I mean, mm. there was a mm -hmm. yeah. ton of great stuff during the day. There was a ton of fun stuff at night. But then if, you know, after that was over, you could just pop down to the pub downstairs yeah. from the hotel and just see who's down there hanging out. And again, right. you get a, a lot of time with, you know, a lot of time with friends, like some of the, you know, people you mentioned that we've known on Facebook, you know, right. yeah, hanging yeah. out with, uh, you know, with Mick and Floss, Floss and, and uh, the uh, yeah, shout out to the, uh, the tall Roo smile. That's exactly what I was going to say. Um, yeah, you bet. And just, you know, just sitting down just and just hanging out with people, you know, that yeah, was just great. Absolutely. There just was no, there was no time to get bored. It was, no. you were just constantly busy. And constantly yeah. having a great time. Exactly. The only problem was the lack of sleep because you felt like you could just keep going. <laughs> yeah. And boy, lack of sleep was a real problem, wasn't it? <laughs> By that last couple of days, man, like oh. Saturday. So for, for folks who weren't there, we did our, our two shows on Thursday and Saturday. Right. And right. the conference ended on Sunday. Right. And so like, I remember as soon as we were done on Saturday, I was just like, breathe a big sigh of relief. I was like, yeah. okay. I can enjoy this now, you know, because yeah. I mean, I was, but also I, I knew that we had work to do. And, exactly. Um, and it was hard work chasing, the, chasing the guests down, figuring out the recording stuff, working with tech team. Yeah. 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 My goodness. Yeah. So much fun though. So with all that said, what was your favorite moment or do oh, you man. have one favorite I knew moment? that was going to be a question and I just, that's, I don't know that I have a single favorite moment, but if I absolutely had to pick one. It would be the one that surprised me the most. As many good things as I'd heard about Leaf by Niggle, <laughs> actually witnessing it was unbelievable. It was mind-blowing. It, it, yeah. it brought the text to life in a way that I've never – that no other adaptation ever has of, of any work, of, of any author. I mean, I've never, ever seen an adaptation yeah. so well done. Yeah. And it just – it took my breath away. I was so moved, um, if I'm being honest, moved to tears even by the end of it. Oh, yeah. It's such a, a powerful piece, of course, but it was just far and away the most um, pleasant surprise of the event for me, yeah. 
Yeah. I think that was one of the most common responses to that show that I heard during the event because that was yeah. that was the first full night, I think, wasn't it? It was Wednesday it night. It was. Yeah, because the event, we had the pub moot Tuesday night, but the yeah. event itself proper started Wednesday. Right. And that was Wednesday night. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, you just, the rest of the week, you just heard people talking about how much they were moved by that. And, oh, man. And that was incredible. And again, I'd go see it again to, tomorrow if I could. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. And getting to talk to, to Richard after oh. it was incredible. Um, what as a folks guy. will have heard by now. Yeah. I guess if I had to pick one that wasn't that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. I still, I don't know. There. I mean, they're just, they're just so many. It, it just, I can't pick one favorite moment, but I think just the the moments where we're just sitting there um, having off the cuff conversations with some of our favorite, yeah, you know, Tolkien, yeah, Tolkien scholars and artists. I mean, like hanging out with Ted Naismith and right, uh, right, just, you know, after we recorded the interview with him, just kind of shooting, oh, the sitting around for, a few for twenty minutes, right? Yeah, exactly. That was great, or, and or, or talking like, with Tom Shippey over breakfast. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Talking oh, to him about the, the newspaper he was reading, and, or, and the uh, theft of uh, the was it the theft of sheep? No, the, something, the theft of sheep dogs. I think it was. I think right? that might stealing have been, yeah. the sheep dogs. Yeah. Uh, oh yes, it is a problem actually. And he's telling <laughs> yeah. me all about it. And yeah, yeah it was great. <laughs> or just you know, like running into to Andy Higgins in the halls and just like, oh, hey, where man. are you off yeah. to? You know, and just like right. sitting down with him and talking to him for a little while. This it was neat. that kind it of really stuff. Was. That kind of stuff was was great. And it's not to say that the talks weren't. Uh, weren't favorite moments because they oh, no, were. Oh, the talks were amazing. Especially, yes. I mean, I, I keep thinking about uh, Dimitra Fimi's Dimitra's, yeah. keynote the talk. The closing just, speech. Oh, yeah. Oh, the closing talk so was great. phenomenal. It was a great way to end. Yes, it was. Great way to end the conference. It really was. So what's, I mean, I guess kind of following up on that same question is, is what's a single memory you have? And this might be rather than a, an event or a talk, what's the one memory from the event that you, you think you'll have for forever, or at least as long as you have memories. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be clear. That's a, that's a grim thought, man. It is. Um, it is. Oh, there were so many things. I um, know. That's such a hard question. There were, there were, there were some things that were said late at night. Oh at gosh, the I know the pubs where you're going. Oh, that that no. can't be said here. No, um, they cannot even be said in our blooper reel. No, no, they 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 will never be forgotten though. Let's just no, let's they just will put never be there. forgotten. And the handful of people that were there will know precisely what we're talking about. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I I don't I don't know. I think aside no, from I can't some of the you brought talks, that up. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, I I alluded to it. Uh, let's just say uh, yeah, that I know there were unforgettable moments that the half a dozen people to, that know what we're talking about will need be to laughing remain very hard. There. Yeah, yes, they do need to remain there. Absolutely, you're right. But. Uh, no, you know, there was that one moment when, uh, this is kind of a weird one, but I don't think I'll ever forget being recognized just by our voices. Yes. Wasn't that wild? We were walking It was the down, first night. Yeah. It was the first night. We were walking down the stairs, uh, I think, going to, the to pub, dinner. To the pub, I think. Yeah. yeah going yeah. to the pub for dinner. And uh, we're just having a conversation about something. We weren't even yeah, talking about Yeah, we got to Tesco or something and like picked yeah, up some bottles of water. We're talking about groceries. You know? Right. <laughs> and, yeah, we really and we're were. Just, talk, just having a conversation. We're not talking about the show. We're not talking about anything Tolkien no. related, just talking. And um, I, 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 I'm I, really sorry. I don't remember their names, but there was a I don't either. I can picture us. them, but I don't remember. Young couple in, in front of us suddenly stopped and turned around and said, hey, are you the Prancing Pony guys? Um, <laughs> that was the wildest thing, man. That I'm telling was you. amazing. And you know what? If you guys are listening, please uh, email yeah, us. Yeah, reach or, out to or us. Reach right. out to us on Facebook because I am so sorry. If I sorry. remember correctly, weren't they on their honeymoon? Uh, maybe. Or was that, that a different that does, couple? 
I don't know. I know, I know there was one couple that was there on their honeymoon. That that might have been them. But might have been them. if you guys are listening, just send us an email and re- please remind me of your names because I'm so sorry I have forgotten. I know. Um, so many there names. There were just too many people that I that I met there. But please yeah. remind me who you are and, and I will make sure that I, I remember your names forever <laughs> as well as that moment forever. <laughs> to link with that memory, yeah. That was definitely one. I, I think for me, it was that very first moment when we started our first session on Thursday. And there we are at Tolkien 2019. There are, you know, people in the hall actually there to listen to us. Yeah. (laughs) And that we didn't, that we didn't pay to be there. And just the reality that this is happening, that we're going to be recording an episode here and talking with, at at that point, it was just, uh, it was only two guests because Ted, we had a little mix up with Ted's scheduling and that's why we ended up talking with him separately. Uh, But it was going to be John Garth and Richard Medrington. But I just remember thinking, this is really happening. We're actually Mm -hmm. about to record an episode here in Birmingham at the 50th anniversary of the Tolkien Society. It just felt like, you know, there was a presenter who um, had posted personally on Facebook afterwards talking about imposter syndrome and how it just felt like, wow, you know, how it feels like i'm just a poser because i'm nowhere mm-hmm. near what these other people are these, these I, i'm sur- i'm surrounded totally by people that. like tom shippey and dimitri yeah, Fimi dimitri and john Fimi and, yeah yeah i but, know yeah so i totally i totally get that and i felt that at that moment big time and yet i also felt the support and love of our listeners and it just was easy to get right back on that uh yeah. you know get get back that confidence and call up our first guest and and get doing it so I think that's yeah. going to be a memory I have forever is uh, is that first moment when we started recording that episode. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Well, I know you popped up to the dealer's rooms at <laughs> Many least times. once or twice. Yeah. Uh, do you have, a, you have anything really special you took home from the event? You know what's funny is what I was looking for, there were a number of things I was looking for, but in particular there was one volume uh, that they I, I couldn't find. And uh, so I ended up not getting that. I, I got a few minor things. I I finally was able to track down, or actually somebody helped track it down for me, a hard copy of Tolkien and the Great War. Uh, I, I tend to collect, I want to collect uh, First Impressions UK editions. Oh, and right, for Tolkien yeah. and the Great War, I had a paperback, a U.S. paperback that was like, mm-hmm. you know, 12th impression or something. Certainly not a collectible in any way. And I was mentioning that while I was in line for the John Garth signing. And somebody ran down to the dealer's room and bought the, found a first edition uh, UK bought it for me, brought it up to me. I mean, I had to pay them for it, but <laughs> they went and tracked it down for me. So that actually might be the the souvenir from the dealer's rooms. But I think my favorite souvenir wasn't anything I bought in the dealer's rooms. It was the card that I brought to have signed by as many of the authors of pieces oh, yeah. from Maker of Middle Earth. So yeah. it was John Garth, Tom Shippey, uh, Wayne Hammond, Christina Skull, and Catherine McElwain. Mm-hmm. And so now I just need to uh, to go to you know an event where Verlin Flieger and Carl Hostetter are and I'll have a, a card signed by everybody who contributed to that volume. Yeah. Uh, and that that's probably my favorite thing that I took home. What about you? Yeah, you were smart because I, I carried my actual maker of Middle Earth and was <laughs> lugging that around for a couple of days. And, uh, oh, it was heavy, though. I mean. <laughs> yeah, that is heavy. And you saw me when I had, uh, when uh, John Garth signed it, and I didn't have the right pen for him. So he ended up yes. signing it in. Uh, it was it was my fault. It was my fault for not having a ballpoint, um, right? And uh, and so he signed it with the the pen he had, which was a, um, you know, like an ink gel, 
And so then I'm walking around with <laughs> Maker of Middle Earth open. Why I don't want to I don't want to smudge it. Smudge and it. <laughs> so I walked around for a couple of hours, like <sighs> like well, I walked up to your room and left it in your right. room for a little right. while. Right. I remember that. But uh, no, I guess my favorite souvenir. I got uh, a set of prints um, from one of the artists. Uh, I got oh yeah, lots of prints by lots of artists. But I think I did uh, too. But my 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 personal favorite. Um, it's hard. It, it's, 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 it's either, it's either the ones I got from Yanni Dolphin, which was the, uh, two or meeting Idril on the walls of Gondolin. Yes. Um, and then another one of Galadriel carrying the basin to capture the light of Erendil, oh, Beautiful. Uh, which I want to, I want to put those together because I call it Erendil before and after. Um, <laughs> but I also I got, I also got a set of prints from, uh, Svetlina. Oh um, man. Her Elmanel. Who, if, if folks don't know Elmanel, she does amazing elvish yeah. calligraphy and is actually doing uh texts in in tanguar and you know like illuminated manuscript beautiful beautiful Truly work beautiful I, i've work. been i've been following her work for a long time and yeah. um i got a, a few prints from her that were from the text of the story of numenor uh, yes. like from a calabeth and in and, uh, and other works um, and then i also got a map of numenor so mm. um yeah. i, I so yes, again, I can't pick just one. So I know those can't pick were like one. my favorites. Like I ended up with two very cool art installations that I'm I'm going to yeah. be framing and putting up soon. Yeah, I'd have to include Yanni Dolphin's work there as well. I I bought I bought the same one you did about Tour and Idril on the walls of Gondolin, a uh, smaller mm-hmm. version of it. But I got the um, the, the one where Tour uh, first comes to the sea, mm. and if you guys look that up, it is just. My heart just sang when I saw it in the yeah. art exhibit. It just the emotion of that moment of two or first coming to the sea, just breathtaking. So, uh, we're hoping to actually have Yenny on uh, at some point. Uh, you know, doing a mini interview, oh, somewhere down the season. So, yeah, uh, stick yeah. around, folks. Uh, we're going to have actually a few artists on. So, looking forward to that. Yeah, for sure. So, was there anything that I know? This probably the answer is no. But is there anything you didn't like? Um, maybe not so much about the event per se, but something you were glad to see come to an end. Um, there was nothing I didn't like about the event. The event was fantastic. Uh, It exceeded all my expectations. I think the, the one thing that, um, I was glad to see come to an end was, uh, not sleeping. (laughs) And, Uh, 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 yeah, I know what you mean. And that, that was, you know, that was a little tough, but, um, yeah, no, it it was nice to get back on a proper sleep schedule. Of course, it was wonderful to come back home and see my family and everything, but, uh, no, I mean, the event itself was just, yeah, I mean, it was just, uh, it was satisfying from beginning to end mm-hmm. and and satisfying is is not a big enough word i don't know no, it isn't there, there's but it was just so immensely satisfying on every level like it just yeah. it satisfied me down to my core it gave me everything that i wanted out mm-hmm. of the event so totally yeah. i concur and really like you said the only thing that i was glad to see change was <laughs> my sleep patterns uh, i i have not stayed up that late since grad school i mean i <laughs> I go to bed at 10 o'clock on a, on a, on a late night. And for me to be up until two or even three in the morning, socializing with, with yeah. friends, uh, is just unheard of. But then again, I didn't have to get up at five thirty in the morning. So there is that. There is that. <laughs> well, finally, uh, because Birmingham does have a few famous Tolkien tourist attractions, I'm curious, uh, did you get to see anything while you were there? Uh, you know, disappointingly, I didn't. I know I had a little bit of extra time, but I ended up using a lot of that for for work and for just rest recovery and things like that. But uh, I understand you did. So so tell us a little bit. Uh, I did, actually. On Sunday, after the conference was over, uh, a group of us, about about 10 people, 
mm-hmm. then we ended up having like, you know, more people join us later on. I think it probably ended up about 12 by the time it was done. But uh, a group of us took the train down to Sarah Hole Mill, um, oh, wow. which is, yeah. you know, folks, have, I'm sure folks know that name, but it's it's really close to where Tolkien spent his young childhood. Um, right. You know, he and his brother Hillary played there. Mm-hmm. You know, it is an inspiration for, you know, things like the mill in the Shire. Yep, yep. That was amazing because not only was it just a great time with friends that I had made at Tolkien 2019, but just to actually be in that place, you know, to be in a place where Tolkien had spent time. And then we actually walked to the place where his house was. Yeah. Um, and I I understand that the house that's there now is not the house that he lived in. It, it was built later on, like in the 30s. But oh, okay. we went to that location and I would have loved to have spent more time there, but I. Um, yeah. I had a bus well, yeah, to you had back to, to London to, later right, that day. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. My goodness. So, but it was a way of kind of extending the event yeah. just by a, f- a few more hours, just with a few friends, and that was fantastic. I I would have liked to have done that. I uh, I wish I'd had a chance to take a look at some of those uh, some of those places, but I'm glad you did. Well, folks, all that fun is finally over, and I think that we here at the Prancing Pony Podcast are finally a little bit at least ready to move on. <laughs> a little bit. It's a hard. Little bit. It is really hard. Uh, but if you'd still like to hear more of our memories of Tolkien 2019, we've got a few things for you. Uh, Sean put up a Prancing Pony pondering about Tolkien 2019 back in uh, August, August 18th. So that's up on our website, theprancingponypodcast.com. And by the way, we actually are planning to put up a few more Prancing Pony ponderings throughout the yeah. season. Yeah. Uh, obviously, with weekly episodes, we're not going to be able to do them every other week like we used to. But <laughs> no, folks, no. just just watch the website and watch our social media spaces. You'll see them. That's right. Now, speaking of social media, our short videos from Tolkien 2019 are still up on Facebook, where they originally appeared live during the event. And they're also up on YouTube, and there are links to them floating around our Twitter feed at Prancing Pony Pod. So be sure to check those out. Uh, also, the Tolkien Society has posted videos of several of the panels and presentations on their YouTube channel. And we've actually shared a link to that on our social media spaces. Mm-hmm. And all of our videos from the event and all of the Tolkien Society videos from the event and probably a few others have sure. uh, been shared by a longtime listener and friend of the show, Trotter, Yes, on the, let me just say, the award-winning collector site, TolkienGuide.com. Um, the Tolkien Society award-winning collector Tolkien site. Tolkien Society yes. award-winning collector site, TolkienGuide.com. Yep, winner of the, the best website award. Mm-hmm. Trotter put those up in a post on August 16th. We'll have a link up to that in our show notes as well. Yeah. And before I wrap up this segment, I really do want to give a shout out uh, both to Trotter or Andrew, who's a moderator at TolkienGuide.com, and uh-huh. to Jeremy Uroloke, uh, who's the admin of the site. Uh, two fantastic guys who know a ton about Tolkien. Oh, and yeah. We had the pleasure of spending a lot of time with, with each of them at the conference, mm-hmm. and that was, that was a treat. Yeah, it was. Absolutely. Well, folks, let's go ahead and get this season started properly. I'm excited to talk about some of the stuff we're looking forward to in book two of The Lord of the Rings. Well, because, as you know, we're all about the books here at the Prancing Pony Podcast. Yeah, I mean, we bring you other Tolkien stuff from time to time. We bring moot reflections and news about the Amazon series when we have it and discussions right. on the movies. But at heart, I think you folks know, Alan and I are fans of Tolkien's books and yes. books about Tolkien. That's really our passion. Yep. And as I think or hope you've noticed, we read a lot of books in preparation for the show every week. Now, if you'd like to get your hands on a book we've mentioned, you're going to want to check out the official library page of our website, thebrancingponypodcast.com, where we have links to every book we've mentioned on the show. Yeah, and there's a lot of other stuff on our website, too. There's show notes to every episode and book links uh, Mm -hmm. specific to each episode. There's outtakes. 
there's Prancing Pony Ponderings, and there's even a few other little extras. Mm -hmm. You'll also find a link to our online storefront where you can find shirts, mugs, stickers, and other great Prancing Pony podcast gear as we get our designs up and running. So check that out. Yep. And now it's time to start with a recap of book one. Sure. But, you know, before we get into themes, I want to say a word about the tone of book one, because it is quite different from the rest of the book, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It really is. I mean, when we start book one, we are still really very much in the world of The Hobbit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think this is something that Tolkien was really aware of. I mean, if I'm, I'm thinking back to some of his letters from like the late 1930s to the early 1940s. Mm, yeah, when he was first starting it. Right. When he's first starting work on Lord of the Rings and he's writing to Christopher or he's writing to the folks at Allen and Unwin, he tends to refer to the book in terms like the Hobbit sequel or the new Hobbit for a really long time. Yeah. In fact, it's still the new Hobbit as late as March of 1945 when he writes letter mm -hmm. number 98 to Stanley Unwin. Now, that's even though he'd already come up with the title The Lord of the Rings as early as 1938. Yeah, yeah. So he really was thinking of it truly just in terms of, you know, the sequel to The Hobbit. Now, it is also true that very early on, he questioned whether Lord of the Rings was a very fit sequel to The Hobbit. That's and true. I'm, I'm thinking yeah. of letter number 35 to C.A. Firth at Allen and Unwin, which was written in February 1939. Mm -hmm. You know, he was concerned pretty early on about Lord of the Rings being too dark, too adult. Yeah. You know, in letter 34 to Stanley Unwin, he said it's becoming more terrifying than The Hobbit. Uh, and he also called it more adult there as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. So he was aware of a shift in tone happening early on, but still the the finished product of book one really does feel like The Hobbit Part Two. Yeah. Not to be confused with Peter Jackson's movie, The Hobbit oh, golly, Part Two. No, no. <laughs> but, no. You know, but it's like really The book Desolation one really, of Decent Movies. That's the one. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> uh, but it really does feel like the, the Hobbit part two and, and the additional yeah. details of Lord of the Rings are building on that world of the Hobbit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, we do get a lot more details from the very beginning. Uh, yeah. You know, we talked last season about how the phrase the Shire is never used in the Hobbit. Right. Even though we now retroactively apply that term to that world. Right, right. In the Hobbit, Bilbo's home is called Hobbiton. And Hobbiton is only placed in that larger administrative unit called the Shire at the beginning of The Lord of the Rings. And we do start to see that organizational structure of the Shire, the farthings, the, the, the government like the sheriffs and, you mm -hmm. know, all of that stuff, the culture and so on. And we see that very early in Lord of the Rings, but it's still very firmly in that world of the Hobbit. We, we start with Bilbo, with the very simple, rustic nature of Hobbits, all the stuff mm -hmm. we got on the pages of The Hobbit itself. Mm -hmm. It's just that in The Lord of the Rings, we see this stuff applying to other Hobbits as well, and in, in fact, more so, really. Yeah, definitely. And and as the book goes on, we do start to see hints of something else, right? A deeper world, a, a, an older world that starts to intrude mm -hmm. on the world of The Hobbit. And I mean, this actually happens pretty quickly as early as chapter two, The Shadow of the Past, when Gandalf starts telling the story of the ring and Sauron. Right. And he talks right. about Gil-galad and Elendil and uh, Smeagol and Deagol. Mm. So it happens, it, it starts pretty early. You start to see these little hints of this this larger world. Continues in chapter three, three is company, uh, right. when you get, you know, Gildor and the elves showing up and, uh, you know, the first utterance of elvish language in Tolkien's published true, writings true. and the hymn to Albereth. Oh, yeah. That's absolutely true. And, you know, once the hobbits were properly out of the Shire, though, that process just keeps on going. You've got the yeah. appearance of Tom Bombadil. That hints at some of the, the vast mystery that there is to be explored in this world. Mm -hmm. 
You get the Barrow Whites and Mary's memory of the battle and the men of Doom in chapter eight. Mm-hmm. And even Tom's mention of the lady who wore the brooch, all this stuff that, that brings in that deeper and older world. And even the narrator's information about the people in Bree in chapter nine with the mention of the kings from over the great sea. So mm-hmm. you start to get these textual ruins appearing kind of on the edges of the story as book one goes on. The world is certainly getting deeper, but the deeper history doesn't have, I don't know, doesn't have too much impact on the main story, at least not yet. Yeah, it still kind of stays on the fringes. Yeah. And and the main story is is something else. But I think I think two things change when Strider appears. Mm-hmm. First, some of those textual ruins start to give way to actual ruins, like the well, ruins right. of what literal used to be ruins, the North yeah. Kingdom. Right, literal ruins, what used to be the North Kingdom. Yeah. As they travel from Bree to Weathertop, you know, we get all those ruins of, um, you know, well, basically the, the Ailed Enta Yawerk, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we even get a little bit of those before Strider's appearance, but they really start showing up. That's true. I mean, we get that, a little yeah. bit of that with the Barrow Downs, don't we? Yep. The walls, um, those little, the as they're crossing over and Tom explains to them where they come. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. So it, it definitely kind of ramps up when Strider appears. Oh, yeah. And, very much so. And I feel like that's the point at which some of these stories on the fringes start to feel like they have more bearing on the story we're reading. And I don't know if that's just because I've read this story a whole bunch of times and I have that hindsight <laughs> of knowing, oh, this stuff is important. Yeah, um, maybe. You know, I, I don't know. But I mean, like, consider, you know, when Gilgalad comes up. Mm-hmm. And Frodo starts to talk about how he went to Mordor and Strider stops him saying, I do not think that tale should be told now with the servants of the enemy at hand. Mm-hmm. That's that's a reminder that the enemy in Mordor, who was Gilgalad's foe, yeah. is the same foe that's threatening them today. Right. And I think that's something that even a first time reader picks up on. And oh, yeah. and it's just another way of saying that that story, you know, that story of Gilgalad is still going on. That's true. And then you get Strider telling the story of Baron and Luthien and Arendil. Yeah. And he says, you know, the end is not known, which, of course, hints that, like you said, the story is still going on. And then Sam, of course, later on will realize that same thing. He says, we're in the same tale still. Right. You know, it makes sense that that deeper story in the background would start to intrude on on Frodo's story when Strider appears, because really Strider is a representative of that world, that old first age world in the flesh. He is one of the Dunedain. He's a descendant of Baron, of Luthien and of Arendil. Yeah, he he is literally that world. Well, not literally. He is figuratively that world. Personified, you know, walking, yeah. Personified. He's he's walking into their story yeah. as a representative of that world. Yes, he is. And yet still, throughout most of book one, and certainly the part up until Strider appears, I feel like book one is still tonally in a really whimsical place. You know, it's still mm-hmm. in that, it's still in that place that The Hobbit is in, um, yes. in terms of its tone. You know, again, thinking of things like the the sentient fox in chapter three. Oh, yeah. Well, at the risk of repeating myself, if you haven't watched the video on the Tolkien Society's YouTube oh, yeah, of, you uh, of Dimitri Fimi's keynote on Tolkien folklore and foxes, do yourself a favor and watch that. I mean, it's, oh, it's uh, so fun. It's just fantastic. Much singing is involved. Yeah. And we all got a chance to participate. The, the yes. whole room was, I, I think the whole room was singing. Oh, that was fantastic. Was. That was really quite a moment. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Tolkien Society YouTube channel or uh, the TolkienGuide.com post that I was talking about a moment ago. You can find that right. there. Absolutely. You know, we get a lot of lighthearted hobbitness throughout. 
Uh, we get some of the joking between the hobbits. We get that wonderful bath scene at Crick Hollow in Chapter 5. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's hard not to feel whimsical when you've got a character saying, locks. Um, <laughs> That's a good point, you know? yeah. Or when bathwater is being flung around the room, yeah. Right, yeah, or they're singing yeah. about, you know, how water's great for a bath, but if you got to drink something, you should really drink beer. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's a good point. And then there's plenty of that Arcadia, to borrow Wayne Hammond's word from that Mythlore article he wrote in 1987. We talked about oh, that yeah. at the mm -hmm. beginning of the season last time. Uh, that, that bucolic description of nature that's all over book one, that establishes what this world is and why the hobbits are willing to fight for it. And we yeah. talked about how that gives us a kind of before picture. Uh, quoting Hammond, we grow to love the Shire as we never loved Bag End in The Hobbit, having visited there so briefly before Bilbo was hurried away. And he's right. That that right there tells you that we're building on the world of The Hobbit, but we're still in the world of The Hobbit. Right. Yeah. And that's that's exactly it. You're just you are still in that world of The Hobbit and you are still learning more about that world. You still haven't mm -hmm. really stepped out of it yet. Right. But that all starts to change gradually. And it, it does change a little bit from the beginning. You know, things start to get scary once we first see the Black Riders show up. Mm -hmm. It gets still scarier in the old forest, and then we get the yeah. Barrow Downs, even in Bree, when oh, yeah. uh, when the Prancing Pony is attacked. You know, that that ramps up the scariness, or when, when Mary encounters the Black Rider in the street. Oh, man, yeah. But it really, really takes a grim turn at Weathertop when Frodo is stabbed. Yeah. That's when I feel like we, we finally start to see some real stakes in mm -hmm. in this this conflict. You know, now the threats aren't just supernatural and magical it's not just things like evil trees and murderous whites uh and and yeah i mean i, I realize the black riders are supernatural but but now there's a very real threat of a character actually getting stabbed and killed true and the fact that frodo is stabbed and that we know that he's permanently wounded by that mm -hmm. that yeah. shows us that the hero is vulnerable in a way that I, I don't think bilbo was ever really that vulnerable in the hobbit no i think you're right i mean even when bilbo was in danger of being eaten by Gollum or, or burned alive by Smaug or even stuck in the middle of the Battle of Five Armies, he wasn't actually wounded. You know, Frodo is, and I think that makes the stakes feel just a little bit bigger. Yeah. Um, and I think that might be what Tolkien meant when he said, like you talked about a moment ago, that the Lord of the Rings is becoming more terrifying than The Hobbit. Mm -hmm. uh, or what he said in letter 47 to Stanley Unwin about it being in places more alarming than The Hobbit. Mm -hmm. uh, he even said to Naomi Mitchison in letter 122 that the Lord of the Rings is not for children and rather grim in places. Yeah. And that grimness, that that grimness and that sense of high stakes is it's going to continue to increase through book two. Yeah, We're going to yeah. be seeing a lot less of that simple hobbitry. We're going to see a lot less of that whimsical stuff. Mm -hmm. It's not going to disappear completely, of course. People well, no, who've read no. the book know. I mean, that that thread of humor and that that thread of hobbitishness and sort of celebrating some of the simple joys of living and, and stopping to enjoy a, a nice smoke and, and a dinner with friends, you know, that kind of stuff is going to continue, but it's going to be a thread in a larger, grimmer, dare I say, like more epic, you know, story yeah. instead yeah. of being just, instead of being more of a focus as it is in book one, That's uh, we're going to see a lot less of that whimsy and just more and more of this grim and serious. And, you know, middle, it, it really kind of, defines, I think, our our long-term view of Middle-earth. You know, our, our, mm. our understanding mm -hmm. of Middle-earth is never the same again after no, we've gotten right. to this point. I think you're absolutely right. But this does seem as good a place as any to bring up that Tolkien thought of these two sides of the coin, this, you know, the, the simple hobbitry, the whimsical stuff and the humor, as well as the grimness and the darkness and the heaviness. 
these are related. And in fact, they're dependent on each other. We go back to Humphrey Carpenter's line about how Tolkien's a man of antitheses, <laughs> which of yeah. course, Verlin Flieger also, you know, expanded upon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1947, Tolkien wrote a letter to Stanley Unwin, which was a response to some comments on book one from Rayner, uh, who said that the story was brilliant, but also macabre and intensified beyond the conflicts in The Hobbit. Now, Tolkien responded in letter 109, and he said, I'm sorry he felt overpowered, and I particularly miss any reference to the comedy, with which I imagined the first book was well supplied. It may have misfired. I cannot bear funny books or plays myself. I mean those that set out to be all comic. But it seems to me that in real life, as here, it is precisely against the darkness of the world that comedy arises, and is best when that is not hidden. Evidently, I've managed to make the horror really horrible, and that is a great comfort. For every romance that takes things seriously must have a warp of fear and horror, if, however remotely or representatively, it is to resemble reality and not be the merest escapism. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I mean that kind of says it all. Tolkien yeah, it really does. did think that the first book was pretty funny. You know, he he, yeah. he intentionally filled it with these comic moments and he did that to contrast with the the fear and the horror that would that would come later on. So he was he mm-hmm. definitely was aware that he was doing this. And yeah. And and I think that that might be the the comic elements and the whimsical elements might be one of those things that I think puts off certain readers of Lord of the Rings, people who've mm-hmm. read all of it, people who've read the Silmarillion. Um, and, you know, they look back on book one, they say, oh, book one's so silly. You know, it's got, it's got the sentient fox. It's got Tom Bombadil. It's got all this, you know, all this stuff that just doesn't whimsical really fit. Whimsical stuff, right. All this whimsical stuff that doesn't fit well with the rest of the book. But Tolkien was very intentional about what he was doing. Yeah. And, and as we say, this is sort of that before picture yeah. that sets up the contrast of what the after picture is going to be in book two. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We don't want well, to get no. too into Not book too two far, right now. No. No. Um, I think before we talk any more about book two, we want to take a look back at some of the themes that we saw in book one. Yeah. And yeah. I want to start with the the theme of fate and free will. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's something that doesn't appear everywhere in book one. No. But it is an important theme throughout, you know, going back to chapter two, Shadow of the Past, and the whole idea that the ring came to Bilbo and thus to Frodo. Right. You know, we, we talked about the idea that Bilbo was meant to find the ring mm-hmm. and that Frodo was meant to have it, uh, but that they each still need to exercise their free will to do what right. has to be done. You know, that all That's we have it. to decide business from Gandalf. <laughs> right. Know, and, and, that, and that, you know, leads to Bilbo passing the ring to Frodo and Frodo leaving the Shire with it. And, and it really is a combination of fate and free will there. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about how those two things frequently go hand in hand in Tolkien. We have this tendency to view events as being either fate or free will. Mm-hmm. And yet so often it really is genuinely a combination of both, even though that doesn't really fit into our thinking very cleanly. Uh, yeah. But, you know, we, we see that, I think, in Chapter 7 also with Tom Bombadil. He happens upon the hobbits through no plan of mine. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, of course, gives us one of our favorite statements ever about how just chance brought me then, if chance mm-hmm. you call it. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah, fate and free will. And we're going to see a lot more of that, of course. But yeah, we also saw a lot of hope and despair. I'm thinking in, in the Old Forest, Chapter 6, I'm reminded of that passage from the Tom Shippey essay that we quoted uh, more than once, at least last season. He says, the literary functions of the wood are then, first of all, to get lost in, and second, to find your way out of. This makes sense literally, for the main thing about a wood is that you can't see very far. 
-hmm. In particular, you can't see the sky, and so you readily lose your bearings, as indeed happens to the hobbits as they make their way through the old forest. But losing your bearings very easily has allegorical meaning, error, moral as well as physical blindness, a sense of despair. Yeah, that's a good one. And I, yeah. and I remember that quote, and I love that quote. And mm -hmm. I, I, this this theme of hope and despair, I think it came up it came up a lot in book one, especially when you consider how that's the book that has the reputation of being, you know, kind of kind of more whimsical, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's Fog on the Barrow Downs, chapter eight. Yeah. You know, that's where we saw Frodo feeling limp like a helpless prey. He, mm -hmm. he actually almost gives in to despair. Yes. To to abandon his friends to die. Yeah. And and has actually rationalized it all in his head. You know, he's mm -hmm. already figured out. Ah, Gandalf would know, understand. Yeah. Gandalf would understand. I had no choice. But then he moves past that and he ultimately yeah. rives, rises above that. And mm -hmm. he manages to live up to, you know, what Bilbo and Gandalf think of him, which is that he's the best hobbit in the Shire. You know? Right. That's a huge moment for Frodo. That is. That's one of my favorite Frodo moments, really. Yeah. And such a triumph of hope yeah. over what, you know, is certainly a, a a situation that one could despair of. It's a, oh, that's a very a hopeless moment. Right. Seemingly hopeless situation. Yeah. We talked a little bit about Frodo starting to feel some despair just on the road, just kind of weary and despairing of the trip. You know, when he's on the way to Weathertop, mm -hmm. uh, we saw some of this in chapter 11 as the homelessness and danger starts to weigh on him. Right. We saw it again later in chapter 12 as the Black Riders are pressing in. True. And and we, we had a really great reminder of hope not long ago in that same chapter, chapter 12, Flight to the Ford. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when Sam despairs of Frodo's wound on Weathertop and Strider, the guy whose name is Estel, Hope, yeah, that's right. reminds him not to give up hope. That's right. Estel himself saying, basically, don't give up on me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, we also saw a lot of the death and immortality and transfer of power theme that we've talked about. Not not a whole lot in book one, but we did we did see it. Uh, we got a bit of that in chapter three in Three's Company when Gildor and his people are leaving. They have their own yep. labors and sorrows. This isn't their fight. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to be seeing a lot more of it as we get into the rest oh, of yeah, the story. Oh, yeah, That I becomes mean, the, a much bigger theme. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The more we get to know the elves um, through Elrond, Galadriel, even Legolas, you know, mm -hmm. we're going to get yeah. more of that. But again, don't want to get too well, far ahead of ourselves. Right. <laughs> and then we've also seen a lot of our themes from Beowulf, the monsters and the critics, and on fairy stories. Yeah. You know, we, we talked about the idea of the Shire as the little circle of light that's surrounded by darkness in the Beowulf essay. And that's especially with Frodo and the Hobbits, like the Germanic hero, leaving that circle of light to go out into the dangerous darkness and confront the monsters in it. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's definitely a sense there of man at war with the hostile world, right? You know, mm -hmm. we're not quite at that inevitable defeat point yet that we tend to get no, in, in Germanic no. literature. Uh, we'll get some of that concept in the later story for sure, but oh yeah, um, definitely man at war with the hostile world. Um, although, you know, we're also, like you said, on fairy stories too. I mean, I'm just thinking of all the, the mini eucatastrophes, micro eucatastrophes, whatever you want to call them, mm -hmm. that we've had throughout book one. I mean, chapter three, you know, Gildor and the elves arrive right when Frodo is about to succumb to the ring's temptation. Yeah. Um, chapter six, Tom Bombadil rescues the hobbits from Old Man Willow. Chapter mm -hmm. eight, Tom Bombadil rescues the hobbits again from the Barrow White. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know, I'm trying to think of others. Well, there's the eucatastrophe that started off the entire story uh, in chapter two. Well, yeah. The past. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Uh, Bilbo's yeah. finding of the ring in chapter five of The Hobbit so that 
the ring could escape with him and ultimately end up in Frodo's hands, and which takes us back to the fate and free will theme that we were just talking about. Yeah, that's true. And honestly, it takes us back a little bit to one of our other favorite themes, the ring at work, because, you know, we talked about how the ring wanted to escape from Gollum, and so it got itself that far, but then Bilbo found it, you know, which right. uh, which was the catastrophe. But yeah, the ring at work has been a huge theme throughout book one. Uh, it has, I think, mostly worked on Frodo in book one, not entirely. We mm-hmm. saw Strider tempted by the ring. You know, there, there's the moment. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. It's in the chapter called Strider, chapter 10. You know, right. the I could have it now moment. Yeah. Um, now, and I know we were kind of inconclusive on whether he was actually being tempted at that moment or whether he had already gotten past it. I think we both mm-hmm. kind of landed mm-hmm. in different places. But yeah. Clearly, he he was tempted by the ring. He was definitely being oh, yeah, tempted yeah. by at the ring some at some point. point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And of course, we've seen the ring continually tempt Frodo. Uh, long expected party. He's tempted to use the ring early on in his ownership of it, uh, like mm-hmm. as in day one when the Sackville Baggins show up. Mm-hmm. Chapter three, of course, the ring calls to Frodo when the Black Riders are near. And then similarly, the ring again calls to him when the Black Riders are near in chapter 12. Yeah. And yet, and this is really fascinating, despite near constant temptation from the ring frodo's only used the ring three times in book one and and once was an accident right um, right but and well and i guess i'll just i'll list all these out but i mean it's interesting to note that all three times that he's ended up using it it has ended up costing him something yeah chapter seven in the house of tom bombadil you know after fearing that tom has pulled some kind of magic trick with the ring because he he didn't turn invisible frodo actually tries on the ring and Tom sees him. Uh, I guess that yeah. one doesn't really cost him so much except for, you know, Tom giving him a little talking to, which, you know, you don't want to upset Tom. So that's no. that's that's still not a good no. thing. No, it's not. Chapter nine uh, at the Prancing Pony, obviously very memorable scene. Frodo has a few drinks, dances on the table, falls <laughs> off. Yeah. The ring slips onto his finger. And, and this is the accident, right? And this is the ring. At least it, it appears to be an accident for Frodo. This is the ring really acting more or less entirely of, of its own agency. This is really yeah. oh, completely yeah. the ring at work. But that costs him hugely. That ends up oh, alerting Bill yeah. Fernie and the Southerner and, and the Black Riders to who he is. Yeah. And then finally on Weathertop, you know, Frodo feels compelled to place the ring on his finger, allowing the Black Riders to see him more clearly and stab him. So he only gives in to temptation a few times, but every time... It, it hurts, you know, it, 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 oh, it yeah. ends up, he ends up coming out the worst for it. Absolutely. And this isn't going to stop in book two either, as we'll expand on later. Uh, we'll actually see the ring tempting others more severely than it tempts Frodo. Uh, but again, oh, yeah. don't want to get too, too far ahead of myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And finally, in book one, we saw a lot of fellowship. Now, some of it we saw on the level of the entire community, like the hobbits doing this for the Shire and their love of the Shire as a motivator. But Mm -hmm. mostly we saw fellowship on the level of good friends. I'm thinking of scenes like in uh, Chapter 5, A Conspiracy Unmasked, Frodo's friends refusing to let him go to Rivendell alone, sticking with him through thick and thin. Yeah, that's great. Or or right before that, when Farmer Maggot offers to help, standing up to the Black Riders for a fellow hobbit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and really just the love and friendship shown by Sam and Pippin and Mary throughout. You know, there's... There's Bilbo's birthday party and there's the aftermath of Bilbo's birthday party with Frodo and Mary, you know, kind of ribbing each other. Yeah, um, yep. There's there's the bath time at Crick Hollow. There's all the shenanigans at the Prancing Pony. <laughs> shenanigans. Um, <laughs> and just they are true shenanigans, man. They are, and, man. And just 
Sam being Sam, you know, the fact that he, he is willing to step up and face whatever comes their way Mm -hmm. for love of Frodo. Yeah. And, you know, and, and for love of the others too. I mean, he's willing to, he's willing to take it in stride when Pippin asks him, what is it? Pippin asks him for breakfast one morning. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, You know, he, he just kind of, he just kind of does it because, you know, these are his people. This is his place. And, uh, it's true. And there's a huge, huge amount of fellowship there. Absolutely. Well, fellowship and the ring at work were two themes that we saw in book one over and over again. Now, yeah, that is going to continue in book two, but it's going to evolve. It's going to start taking on a different perspective as the story gets bigger, the world gets deeper, and it'll also take on a different tone as the story gets, well, darker and more, more adult, really. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's a good segue into our look ahead to book two. Well, I hope so. I wrote it that way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> exactly you know thanks for calling out the segue though i mean i kind of made you know, it more obvious Isn't i, I want to make, you know? make sure everybody can see how good of a segue we've come up with there you go so we've already talked about how we know the tone is going to get darker and grimmer what about the yeah. themes let's go ahead and take a look right. at some of the themes we're going to be seeing now obviously i don't think we have to say this but because we're doing a look ahead we're, we are relying on our knowledge of the story to come, right? You mean you've read this? Yeah. <laughs> Believe like it or not. Long. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it sometimes, sometimes because I forget, I forget some forget. details. I yeah. know. Well, folks, you know we're long past spoiler warnings in this show. And, and anybody who's listening to this, I, I would imagine everybody's already read The Lord of the Rings or at the very least have seen uh, Peter Jackson's adaptations and knows where the story's going. I but, think so. Yeah. But for anybody who is new to the Prancing Pony podcast, the rest of this episode is going to be chock full of spoilers for book two of The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah. So with that said, obviously, we're going to see a lot more of The Ring at Work. Um, Like we were talking about just a moment ago, we're actually going to see Frodo less affected by The Ring than he was in book one. You know, The Ring's not going to be as much of a threat to Frodo himself. He's certainly not as tempted to use it in book two as he is in book one. You know, remember when Galadriel speaks to him later, she's actually going to say, only thrice have you set the ring on your finger since you knew what you possessed. Mm-hmm. And we've already mentioned all three of those times. That's because true. They're all they're in book all... one. Yeah, yeah. Frodo doesn't actually use the ring in book two until the very end of it. And that is, I mean, it's really to get away from Boromir, yeah, on yeah, whom the yeah. ring is really working at that moment. Yeah, true. And then again, I think he puts it on again to 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 leave the fellowship, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I guess both of those are arguably, arguably a little bit more selfless and maybe a little bit less ring driven motives. I guess we could debate mm-hmm. that when we get to it at the end of the season. Uh, but but clearly <laughs> these are not these are not like ring at work temptation moments. He's you know no. he's using the ring as a tool at that point. Right. Now we are going to see the ring at work having an effect on a number of other characters. First at the Council of Elrond. Yeah, uh, and then Galadriel, and then as everybody knows, Boromir throughout his entire character arc. Yeah, so yeah, there's going to be a lot of discussion, uh, and it's going to be centered around how each of these characters interact with the ring, how the ring affects them, and how they manifest that around Frodo. So, yeah. really looking forward to that. And then we're going to see a lot more of Fellowship. Obviously, this is the one book of the entire Lord of the Rings where the Fellowship of the Ring is together as a single unit. So that <laughs> word is going to be repeated over and over again. It's kind of right there on the tin, isn't it? Yeah, um, exactly. That's exactly uh, what and, it says uh, on the tin, folks. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think one interesting conversation that I'm looking to get into is how and whether, I guess, these themes of fellowship and the ring at work balance each other. Mm-hmm. You know, 
I'm I'm noticing, as we just said, that you know the ring is not as much at work on Frodo in book two. Does that have anything to do with the fellowship? You know, does that have anything to do with the fact that Frodo now has eight companions around him instead of the two to four he had in book one? I don't know. Mm. I mean, does that protect him somehow? Does that huh? Does that love and support protect him somehow? Or do specific members of the fellowship have that effect on him? You know, mm. Gandalf is here now. I don't know. I'm not saying it does uh, or that it doesn't. It's just it's something that crossed my mind as we were kind of preparing for this episode. And I'm, I'm interested to look into that. Yeah. That is I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. No, I mean, I, I don't currently at the moment. It will be interesting to discuss, though, because obviously when we see Frodo after book two, like, say, books four and six, he's very much under the influence of the ring. It's working yeah. very hard on him. And, you know, there, there's going to be a lot of reasons for that, as we'll get to in future seasons, things like proximity to Mordor, presence of Gaul, yeah. et cetera. But it's an interesting question. Does the fellowship surround him with some sort of, I don't know, spiritual shield? Uh, it's an interesting <laughs> question, and we're looking forward yeah. to tackling it. But Yeah, you know, and, or, or is it something else? You know, I, I'm curious. Right. Is it is it because Boromir's there? You know, obviously Boromir is ah, yeah. an easy target, you know? <laughs> yeah. Is, and, and is the ring diverting targeting attention him. to Boromir? Yeah, and thinking, yeah. right, I'm going to have better luck with this guy right? Uh, and, and maybe kind of setting aside Frodo for the moment, thinking I, I can get to this yeah. guy much more easily. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Just interesting things that will, that'll be fun to discuss. It will be a lot of fun to discuss that. Now, we're not going to get just fellowship in regards to how it affects Frodo either. We're going to see the theme of fellowship in the developing relationships of other members of the fellowship. Uh, Legolas and Gimli are the first ones that come to mind. The way they simply can't get along at the beginning and the way that animosity changes into friendship and eventually into a very close friendship that becomes yeah. really one of a kind. Um, and then, of course, there's how Aragorn interacts with the rest of the fellowship. You know, first he's this guide, and then really he becomes a leader. And then after Gandalf falls and Moria, even more of uh, kind of the primary or, or really the leader. leader. Yeah. The leader, right. Yeah. Not just a leader, but now the leader. And of course, that Gandalf falling in Moria is going to be the darkest turn yet which leads mm -hmm. us not only into themes of death and immortality, but even hope and despair. And we're going to get a lot of that when Gandalf falls. Yeah. Um, and that's going to see the story take that darker turn and raise those stakes the way we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really, that's big to me. That's a, that's a very oh, yeah. big deal because we've all heard this, you know, Tolkien has a reputation among his critics for being the kind of writer where the good guys always win, right? The good guys always win, the bad guys always lose. Now, we know that's not true, of course, but critics love to love, love to make it sound as if nothing bad ever happens to the good guys in Tolkien's world. But for first-time readers of the story, mm -hmm. I mean, the death of Gandalf might be the first time yeah. someone who's really pure and good dies. You know, you, you look at something like The Hobbit where, of course, Thorin gets a pretty big death in The Hobbit, yeah. and it is a noble death. Mm -hmm. um, and he and he is a he is a noble person uh, coming out at of that, that or, point, or going right. into that at that point. Um, but you you can't escape the fact that before that point, Thorin does succumb to greed for oh, a little yeah. while, and he does become mm -hmm. an antagonist for a little while in the story. Absolutely. And you know, I've heard the argument made that well, that mitigates the impact of his death because you mm. you spent time with Thorin being a bad guy, and that either mitigates the impact of his death or it makes his death somehow. Uh, an atonement for his misdeeds mm. or a punishment for his misdeeds, like people might say Boromir's death is. And I don't uh, really believe that, huh. but I but I can see that argument. I've heard that argument yeah. and I can I can see how somebody would get there, even though I do think Thorin and Boromir, and you've written about this before right, on Appraising right. Pony Pondering, which was amazing a few years ago. Um, oh, thank you. You know, that, that you know, like Boromir 
actually redeems himself before his death. And I think right. Thorin does too. And so yeah. I, I don't think the, you know, the, the dark turn that Thorin takes uh, mitigates his death. But, no. but again, it, it's, I can see the argument, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, right, right. And you can't even make that argument with Gandalf. I mean, first of all, I yeah, want, exactly. I agree. I think with both Boromir and Thorin, and, and this is kind of an aggression, but yeah, they both redeemed themselves before their deaths and their deaths simply were evidence of that redemption, not the cause of their redemption. Yeah, yeah. If that mm -hmm. makes sense. Uh, but with Gandalf, you can't even, you literally can't make that argument because he's pure good and he just right. dies. He, he hasn't succumbed to greed. He hasn't been corrupted by the ring. He hasn't been corrupted by treasure or anything else that leads him to the circumstances surrounding his death. Really, as we'll find out, he sacrifices himself. So, you know, the fact is he, he just, he dies because sometimes the good guys die. Sometimes evil is stronger. Sometimes a person like Gandalf is going to die because it's a fallen world. Evil isn't always a, a comeuppance for somebody's misdeeds. Sometimes it just happens. Mm -hmm. Evil is. You remember that line from Ithopia? Yeah. Of yeah. evil, this alone is dreadly certain. Evil is. So yeah. it's a great line, and I think we're going to get to that. We're going to get to talk a little theodicy along the way, too. So that's going to be fun. Yeah, that's going to be great. And, and I love all of that because I think that's going to set up some more of our Beowulf themes from, mm -hmm. from Beowulf, the Monsters oh, yeah. and the Critics. Yeah. I think, I think it's no accident that right after Gandalf falls, the Fellowship arrives in Lothlorien and we get Galadriel's speech and her comment about how she and Celeborn have spent ages fighting the long defeat. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, that, that brings us back to that, that, that idea from Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics and the, the little circle of light where we fight. We, we fight the monsters. Yep. We fight even though defeat is inevitable, but we fight because it's the right thing to do. And mm -hmm. sometimes we do win, at least for a little while. For a little while, right. Exactly. And that theme is going to emerge towards the end of book two. And, and you know, and it is, um, it is grim at times, but it's also going to mm -hmm. set up Spabimi. Oh, and yeah. It's going to set up some great eucatastrophes, too. And that's yes, it will. bringing in some of that on fairy story stuff again. Mm -hmm. And it's going to set up some of those great questions about fate and free will. Yes. You know, we're going to talk a lot about the difference mm -hmm. between fate in this story. That's Iluvatar's will uh, and the free will of people in the world acting as, as moral free agents. Mm -hmm. uh, our, our responsibility to do what we can with the time that is given us, as you pointed out earlier. That's going to start really early on in the Council of Elrond as the council decides what to do with the ring. And Frodo begins to understand his responsibility and his role in all of this. Yeah. I mean, and the Council of Elrond, I mean, that is going to be a huge focus for us this season. I mean, we're currently <laughs> it's planning practically on spending, a season on its own, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we're, our current plan is to spend five episodes on it. Yeah. Who knows? That could change. I'm not going to say it won't. Um, but it's definitely going to be quite a focus for us. And I think it's going to yeah. be time well spent. I mean, we're going to learn so much about the world. Mm -hmm. We're going to learn a lot about you know, the wizards, Saruman and Radagast. Right. We're going to learn a lot about elves. We're going to continue to build on the idea that, you know, they're leaving Middle Earth and get more of that transfer of power. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, and you know that that transfer of power and and that idea that you know the elves are leaving—that's really a big theme in the movies. I know the movies; it was kind of a constant oh, yeah. theme in the movies. Yeah. I think it's less pronounced here in book two, but but we're definitely going to see it. I think we will. And now we're also going to get some more history of the ring. Obviously, uh, we're going to learn about other places in Middle Earth, like Gondor. Uh, we're going to learn more about history, like Isildur, as well as current events around Middle Earth. What's going on in in Dale? What's going on in other places? Mm -hmm. And and a lot more. Yeah. And here's another big question for me going into this book, you know, 
giving book two the Prancing Pony podcast treatment for the first time. <laughs> Where's my echo button? The Council of Elrond, you you get a lot of information there. It's it's you too. It's it's kind of what what people these days sometimes call somewhat derisively a lore dump. You know? Yeah, kind of is. It's I mean, it's better than that uh, because oh, it's yeah, good yeah. lore and it's important lore. But there's just a lot there, and a lot of it, and a lot of people presenting it too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's a committee meeting. I, I know I can't Elrond do that voice nearly as well. As you chair. Can. Thank you. I can't do that voice nearly as well as you can. Uh, we've got Gandalf going uh, around. I don't know. What did I do on my summer vacation? <laughs> exactly. Oh, so man. as we're getting all this lore, are we going to see more textual ruins emerge? Mm. Or are we going to get, I don't know, text, uh, like fully, <laughs> fully fleshed right, out histories? Right, right. You know? Not the ruins, yeah. I think we're going to get both. I think, I, mm-hmm. But I do think I that think there's so. a lot of fully fleshed out history there. Oh, you yeah, get there is. Not just ruins, but you get actual depth, mm-hmm. you know, and does that does that have a different effect on us when we read that and get a full story as opposed to just these textual ruins, you know? Yeah, I think it does. I think we'll see how much of it does, you know, when we get there. But mm-hmm. yeah, it definitely has an impact on the reader than than just the ruins. It gives... Instead of that sense that there's something out there, it gives you a chance to be out there, to know what's happening, yeah. to be a little bit more informed and knowledgeable. Yeah. It's like that uh, that letter we talked about not too long ago, oh, letter yeah. 247, um, you know, the, the glimpse of an unvisited island. Right. Uh, and how if you, you know, if you get too close to it, suddenly the depth fades unless you, you gain new unattainable vistas. That's the line I remember, the new unattainable so, vistas. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we get some of both in terms of of the Council of Elrond. Yeah. We're certainly going to be getting a lot of textual ruins continuing to intrude on the world. Uh, as yeah. book two goes on, we get the Arendel poem and many meetings. That gives us a, a look at the yeah. deeper world below the surface. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Galadriel ends up name dropping Nargothrond and Gondolin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep, pretty cool does. there. Uh, we visit Eregion for the first time. So there's a lot going on. Yeah. And we get Moria. I mean, mm-hmm. I, and I think Moria introduces us to the dwarves in a way that's, oh yeah I mean, a, a little bit like the deeper look we get at Men and Elves at the Council of Elrond. Yeah, that's true, because the Council of Elrond doesn't tell us much about dwarves. That's true. Right. I mean, a little bit. A little bit, yeah. But we get a little bit more history of the dwarves in Moria. Yeah, we do. And, of course, we get another big textual ruin with the Balrog. I mean, Oh, yeah, yeah. Remember when, uh, he doesn't say this until they get to Lothlorien, but Legolas says, it was a Balrog of Morgoth. Yeah, and you're of like, who? What? <laughs> yeah. Who? Who's Morgoth? That that's an awesome name. Who's that guy? You know, <laughs> he's more goth than you are. He is um, more goth than everybody. Actually, yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> he's definitely winning an award for the most goth. Well, maybe not Ale. That's true. Ale's most goth. Ale that's his other name. Might be more goth than Morgoth. <laughs> more goth than Morgoth. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been an awesome title for the chapter on yeah. Ale. I can't believe we didn't think it, that. It more would, goth than Morgoth. I know. We should have done that. Oh, that's, that's great. brilliant. I love it. That would it. be a great album title, too. More Goth Than More Goth. More Goth Than More Goth. <laughs> For a pop album. <laughs> <laughs> it's Taylor Swift's next one. Right, exactly. Or some sort of K-pop band or something. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man. Funny. That is. We're just touching briefly on composition. You know, we, we talked about the composition of the entire text of The Lord of the Rings back when we did our introduction at the beginning of last season. So we're not going to rehash all that here, but I certainly would recommend you go listen to that discussion. It's in episode 93, and it starts at around the 13-minute mark and goes for about a half hour if you want a refresher. But a few high points, 
remember that Tolkien's composition happened in waves or bursts with breaks in between. And Tolkien, mm -hmm. being Tolkien, did a lot of restarts and rewrites along the way. Uh, now, he had gotten to Rivendell, at least to Rivendell, uh, by September of 1938, and then he went back and made changes to book one, and then continued writing through 1939, and by December of that year, he'd gotten as far as Moria, and at that point, he took a hiatus, which all good creators do. <laughs> <laughs> and us. And us, yeah. too. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't resume writing after that hiatus until August 1940. Mm -hmm. uh, by that point, he had a new plot outline, and he actually had to go back to the beginning to make some changes. Right. But then he continued on, and he actually got to Lothlorien by around the end of 1941. Mm -hmm. Then he started work on book three, which would eventually become the beginning of Two Towers at the beginning of 1942. And so that's the general time frame that he's writing book two, September 1938 through the end of 1941, early 1942. Right. And one more thing we want to do in this episode is remind you of some of the secondary sources that we're going to be using this season. Now, all of these books are going to be a great addition to your Tolkien shelf, and we do have links available on the official library page on our website. First and foremost, The Lord of the Rings, A Reader's Companion by Wayne Hammond and Christina Skull. And then there's The History of Middle-Earth. We're going to be referencing volume six through nine. Uh, but in this season, we'll be working primarily a lot with volume six, which is The Return of the Shadow, and volume mm -hmm. seven, The Treason of Isengard. Uh, and then there's also the J.R.R. Tolkien Reader's Guide by Christina Skull and Wayne Hammond. That's not to be confused with the Lord of the Rings Reader's Companion. Right. All very important books that belong on any yeah. serious Tolkien shelf. Yeah. We're going to be using them a lot, and, and folks should hopefully have those by now. Yeah. Of course, we'll also be referencing a lot of the biographical stuff as we need to. Um, folks know we love using Humphrey Carpenter's biography and the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, the the Raymond Edwards biography, Tolkien. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, of course, John Garth's Tolkien and the Great War. Yeah, no doubt. And of course, there's, you know, there's a lot of specialized resources that we pull in, you know, from time to time. Uh, Ring of Words by Peter yeah. Gilliver, yeah. Jeremy Marshall and Edmund Weiner. Uh, there's Flora of Middle Earth by Walter Judd and Graham Judd. Those are two right. of my favorites and I use them as often as oh, I yeah. can. Yes, you um, do. I don't know. Anything else I'm forgetting? Well, I think it's entirely possible that we'll reference Tom Shippey's two great works, uh, The Road to Middle-Earth oh, and The Author of the Century. Yeah, of mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we might also revisit Paul Coker's Master of Middle-Earth. So, yeah, we got, we got some good stuff out of that one last season. Yeah, yeah. the stuff from, uh, from about Aragorn in there was really insightful, I thought. So yeah. we'll be looking at that again. I know it's a little older, but I think there is enough insight there that if we can find something that's applicable, we'll, we'll definitely mm -hmm. visit it. So just remember, folks, that any book we mention will be listed in the show notes for each episode, and it'll also be listed in our official library at theprancingponypodcast.com. Which I have actually just updated for the beginning of this season, so go check it out, please. Absolutely. Well, folks, that may wrap it up for our introduction to book two, but we're not done yet. We've got Barnum's Bag coming your way in just a minute, and even when that's done, the talk continues all night long at The Prancing Pony. That's right. We've always got lots of discussion happening in our social media spaces, at our common room on Facebook, you'll find comments, questions, corrections, and more on every episode. Mm -hmm. um, not corrections on every episode, fortunately. Oh, just about, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of them. Uh, you'll also see updates from us throughout the week. So just look for the Prancing Pony podcast on Facebook. Click like, click follow, click all that stuff. Yeah. Now you can also find us on Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod and on Instagram at Prancing Pony Pod. So follow us wherever you happen to be. Now, if you like us, please share us on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, anywhere else you can find Tolkien fans. And if you really want to let the world know your feelings about us, give us well, a Well, that depends on your feelings. <laughs> That's true. 
And if you really want to let the world know your feelings about us and their good feelings, give us a review on iTunes. (laughs) Thanks for that. The more reviews we have, the more visible our podcast is. That helps others find us and find this just awesome community of Tolkien fans that we've all built together. Absolutely. Now, if you'd like access to exclusive content like postscripts, uh, quarterly specials, PPP swag, and more, check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod to find out how you can join the fellowship of the podcast. Yeah, we've actually passed our most recent goal of setting up a monthly Discord hangout, which uh-huh. you can join if you're a Patreon supporter at the Gift of Gondor tier or higher. And we're on our way to our next big goal of doing two moots every year because, well, frankly, we have so much fun at them. <laughs> well, and we get to bring you good stuff, but we yeah, can't absolutely. get there without your help. So uh, we've got lots of cool bonus content and gifts to make it worth your while, including that chance to join our Discord server where you'll get a chance to hang out with us once a month or even listen in live while we record a podcast episode. That's right. So if you're interested in joining or if you'd just like to see how we're doing on our goals, visit patreon.com slash prancingponypod. Folks, now I think it's time to see what old Barnumman has in the mailbag for us. Sean. Well, since our hiatus from recording actually started a few weeks before the hiatus from podcast releases, Mm -hmm. we actually have gotten a lot of questions over the summer related to stuff that we discussed in the last few episodes of season (laughs) three. That's true. So we haven't had a chance to answer any of those yet. I kind of thought we'd spend some time in this episode helping Barlaman clear out the mailbag by answering several of those questions. Uh, Clear out? I Surely you don't mean that. Well, no, no. We've got way too many to clear them out, but I guess... I guess make a dent would be more accurate. There you go. So we'll try and make a dent in these. And we're going to start with a question from Brian W. in Provence. Okay. He says, hey, guys, I am currently on episode 116. And by sheer coincidence, I have recently started watching Hobbitite. That's the Finnish Mm. miniseries based on Lord of the Rings from 1993. He said, in the last episode I watched... Who should appear but our dear friend Tom Bombadil? Oh, okay. Could this be his only on-screen appearance in any adaptation? Wow. Unfortunately, we don't see Goldberry, and his trademark speech style seems to be missing, although I'm not sure, as I don't speak Finnish. Mm, But we do see him rescue Marion Pippin from Old Man Willow. (laughs) He finishes by saying, Don't know when you could discuss this, since I imagine you won't be discussing good old Tom for some time now, but maybe in 15 (laughs) years or so when you get to the adventures of Tom Bombadil. There you go. So do with this info as you will and keep up the great podcast. Well, thank you for that, Brian. Yeah, thank you indeed. If you did listen to our last episode, specifically the part in which we interviewed Brian Sibley, you heard us say then that Tom Bombadil actually appeared in a 1992 BBC radio drama of The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, which Sibley wrote. But it wasn't the collection of poems of the same name. It was rather a dramatization of the scenes from Tom's house in The Lord of the Rings, which hadn't been included in the BBC radio drama of 1981. Right. But in fairness, Brian W. asked about on-screen appearances, so that rules out a radio appearance like this one. Now, True. Now, I'm not prepared to say that this Finnish version is the only version that includes Tom, because, well, frankly, I had never heard about the Finnish miniseries, which... (laughs) Same here. Which proves to me that there are adaptations out there that I'm sure I'm not even aware of, but it certainly seems like this is one of the few. Yeah, it it was a new one to me, too. I had never heard of it. But Mm -hmm. yeah, this Finnish miniseries, uh, Hobbitite, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which I'm almost certain I'm not. uh, Which I'll note you're not. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, Hobbitite means the hobbits, plural. Mm -hmm. And it is apparently a nine-part live-action Finnish miniseries from 1993. Wow. As Brian said, it's based on Lord of the Rings, but focusing apparently on the storyline of Frodo and Sam. Oh, okay. 
I am also not prepared to say it's the only on-screen appearance of Tom Bombadil, because uh, uh, again, like you said, yeah. I didn't know this. I had one no existed. idea this one was out there. Yeah, but for what it's worth, he was portrayed in the miniseries by an actor named Esko Hukkanen, who seems to have been a prolific TV actor in Finland. Okay, so there you go. But Alan, you've got the next one. I do. Well, our old friend Zach T wrote in to say, "Isn't it weird how the only other person who takes as many different names as Turin is Aragorn?" I haven't counted them all yet, but I think it's about the same number. Is there anything behind this, do you think? Well, I have to say it's an interesting observation, Zach. So let's do a quick count of the names. For Turin, we've got Turin and Turambar. That's two. Mm-hmm. In Nargothrond, he was called Adonathel and Thurin. Now, that's four. <laughs> and boy, did he do a double take when he heard Thurin. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what? So what, what, what did what? you call me? Uh, and then we get his gear-related names, Mormagil and Gorthal. So now we're up to six. Mm-hmm. And then we get his uh, his self-pity names, Agarwine, <laughs> son of Umarth, <laughs> and Nathan the Wronged. So you got eight there. And then you get Wildman of the Woods. Wildman of the Woods makes nine. Mm-hmm. So for Aragorn, we have the names Aragorn and Strider. Uh, there's also Telkantar, but that's a translation of Strider. So that's still just two. Then we get Elisar or Elfstone. Again, that counts as, as Gimli might say, those only count as one. Uh, because again, it's just a translation. So right. that, now yeah. we're up to three. And then we get Estel, of course. So that's four. And then we get Thorongil, which was his, um, well, the, the, the name of his cover band when he was fighting in Gondor and Rohan. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So there we're up to five. And then we get the names he's given by other people. Uh, Dunedon, Wingfoot, Longshanks, and and Vinyatar the Renewer, there's a tricky one for you. And mm-hmm. wow, that's nine. Same number as Turin. Now, yeah, uh, the, wow. the fact that we came up with the same number, probably a coincidence. There's always the possibility we missed one for somebody. But Zach's point is valid. Aragorn does have a lot of names. Yeah, he does. And that is an odd thing to have in common with Turin. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Better than I'm having a sister in common, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Just, really, yeah. Um, but it, it, it does make it seem almost as though Aragorn is kind of a response to Turin. Like it, it does, it, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, like Tolkien is setting these two up. He's contrasting yeah. these two. He's a, he's an anti-Turin, if you will. You know, mm. I'm fond of yeah, the anti-everything. And Tuor is definitely the anti-Turin because, you know, they right. started out life with similar circumstances, but they ended up with diametrically opposed fates. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe Aragorn is another anti-Turin. and. Yeah, maybe. And in fact, I feel like I should give a shout out to a listener named John T, who all the way back in May 2017 made a comment to us on Facebook about how he thought Aragorn might be the anti-Turin. Yeah. John said that both Aragorn and Turin lost their fathers, were fostered by elves, and they went and fought for other armies. In fact, the description from Appendix A4 of Thorongil's appearance in Gondor Mm-hmm. In the time of Ichthelion, that sounds a lot like Turin and Nargothrond. You know, like the way oh, wow. he, this great warrior shows up and he he becomes this counselor and just, you know, John said both were loved by all those who fought alongside them. And then he added, oh, and both had more names than you can shake a stick at. So, yeah, he was uh, even thinking true. about this. That's true. When he made this comment a few years ago, it is an interesting thought. Hmm. I don't know. I think Aragorn might be another anti-Turin. He might also yeah. be a new tour. Oh, you know, yeah. yeah. Is, oh, there's is that, that the other thing going on here? There's Aragorn as a, a new two or just sort of another mm. chance 
for men to redeem themselves as a race. You know, Iluvatar's yeah. got this plan to give men these heroes that can like lift up the whole human race. And Tuor yeah. was one of those and Aragorn's one of those. Well, Tuor and Idril and Aragorn and Arwen, I mean, they're really, yeah, I can see Aragorn yeah. being a new Tuor for sure. Yeah. Another interesting thing to consider is why Aragorn continually takes on these new names as opposed to Turin. Now, as I'm thinking about it, as you're walking through these things, it occurs to me that Aragorn's many names, Thorongil, Vinyatar, Elisar, Strider, and these generally represent different identities that he's either adopted or been given as he's wandered Middle-earth trying to help people. Now, mm-hmm. Turin kept on moving just like Aragorn, but he changed his own name every time he moved in an attempt to escape his fate and his old misdeeds. So it's a very different impetus for having all these names between the two characters. Yeah, that's true. So though they both have a lot of names, they're they're saying very different things about the two characters. Very, very different. And things, I think right. that is an intentional contrast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. Well, next up, John B. in Lancashire, England asks, On Weathertop, why did it take Strider so long to react to the presence of the Ringwraiths? In my mind, he should have reacted before Frodo was stabbed, not afterwards. In the podcast episode for this chapter of the book, you mentioned the whole attack occurring in seconds, but it still bothers me that Strider does not seem to be more proactive. The text does not seem to clearly describe what Strider is doing before Frodo is stabbed. Uh, maybe he was scrolling through Facebook, I don't know. Uh, was Strider looking around Weathertop? He had like a lot of notifications to catch up exactly, on. Exactly, man. It's triple digits, man. He's been, been, a, he's been out in the wild. I mean, yeah. There was no signal, been... and now there's signal. I got to right. get caught up. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So John goes on to say, was Strider looking around Weathertop, like in the movie? I might not be reading the text correctly, but it'd be great to get your thoughts on this. Well, first of all, no. Strider doesn't seem to leave and look around Weathertop, not like in the movie. What happens in the text is Strider whispers hush right at the same moment that Pippin gasps, what's that? And then the Black Riders are there. Right. And then what happens next happens in about four paragraphs of text. But it really does happen very quickly. I I do have to reiterate that. It it really is a matter of seconds, like we said in that episode. I spent some time reading that that passage again. And here are the specific actions that I've parsed out that are taking place in sequence. So Strider says hush right when the Black Riders are seen by Pippin. Uh-huh, yeah. The Black Riders slowly advance. Tolkien says slowly, but, I mean, come on, it can't be that slowly. <laughs> Pippin and Mary, I mean, they're I'm not like... I'm picturing them moving like sloths, you know? Yeah, right. Like Flash smiling. Right, exactly. Zootopia. Flash's smile uh, <laughs> in Zootopia, yeah. What um, do you call a three-dumped camel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So then... Stuff. Pippin and Mary throw themselves down. Sam right. moves close to Frodo at about the same time. Yep. Then we get this moment of temptation for Frodo to put on the yeah. ring. It's a long paragraph, and mm-hmm. we are told he struggles for a while, but that is very hard to quantify. Very. Um, I, I can't help thinking that this is really in an instant, you know, quick as thought, as they say sometimes. Quick as thought, um, yeah. I, I do think it's happening very quickly. Frodo's just having this, you know, this inner Seconds. debate with himself. Seconds um, at the most, yeah. Seconds at the most. Puts on the ring, sees the wraiths in the wraith world. The witch king springs forward. Frodo throws himself on the ground, calls to Elbreth and strikes. Witch king cries. Frodo swoons, probably at the same time. And then mm-hmm. suddenly Strider's there again, wielding a flaming brand of wood in each hand. Yeah. Uh, That's quick. Again, it it's quick. It It's four paragraphs. And if you read the way I do, it could be a couple of minutes of reading time. But... But I think in story time, this has to be 
I don't know, less than a half a minute, maybe? Oh, oh, much less. 20 seconds? Yeah. 15 seconds, yeah. maybe? Yeah. 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 I don't think Strider reacted as slowly as the drawn-out description might suggest. And, and right. I think that if I had to guess where Strider was, I think he's lighting those branches on fire, right? I oh, mean, yeah. Yeah. Right before the attack, Strider had just told the hobbits, get some of the longer sticks ready in your hands. Mm-hmm. And and then the ring rates are there. They don't have time to actually do that before the ring no. rates appear. So I think Strider saw the ring rates. He looked around for a couple of branches, grabbed them as quick as he could, and lit them. Wow. All in just a few seconds and then reacted. Yeah. Now, I have no idea how long it takes a ranger to light a branch on fire, but I suspect he could probably do it faster than I could. And I think I could do it in maybe a minute, mm-hmm. maybe two. And that's with a butane lighter. I don't know. Right, exactly. Yeah. 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 So I I do think it's fast. I think it's faster than it seems. I agree. So I agree. There you go, John. What's next? Well, let's see. The next one Eric A in Illinois asks I'm curious. The black breath from the Nazgul causes harm to multiple people at various times, but it doesn't seem to affect anyone in the encounter on Weathertop. Any idea Hmm. why they weren't affected then, but it seems so dangerous other times? Good question. Um, mouthwash? No. Um, Eric's <laughs> right, really. <laughs> yeah. They just brushed their teeth. They'd gotten ready for bed, and then they, they realized. They knew they had a date. They knew they had a date. They got the breath spray. <laughs> there you go. There you go. It's the Altoids. That does the job. Yeah. Just open up the tin. I can see yeah. uh, Kamul now. You want one? <laughs> anyway. Are Eric's right. saying I need one? Right, exactly. Yes, I am, actually. <laughs> so, you know, Eric's right that it certainly doesn't seem to be a factor at Weathertop. Nothing in the text says or implies that the Ringwraiths used the Black Breath in that attack. You know, the way we know that they did when Mary ran into them in Bree. Right. Or even when they attacked Minas Tirith later on in Book 5. But that's okay, because the Black Breath is not a chronic condition. <laughs> well, which is good, because they can't afford to have simple chronic halitosis. No, they can't. Do you, you remember that one? That's the, an ad like for Lavor- something, wasn't it? Like Lavoris, I think, back in like the, the early 80s, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Simple I'd... chronic halitosis. <laughs> I, wow. I, don't think, I don't think a month has gone by that I haven't thought about that commercial since I was a kid. Wow, that's sad. That's kind of like, um, what's that uh, triple mint gum ad that in... Uh, in Triple mint gum in, will in, make you smile. Yeah. <laughs> and anger goes inside nuts. out. On inside out. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, let me clarify that the reason that I think of that simple chronic halitosis ad every month wondering. is not because I have simple chronic halitosis. I hope not. It's just I hope it's not no, it's because just, anybody in your family does. No, it's just one of those things like I you know, it's an sometimes what it is. It is. It's like, anyway. uh, and she told two friends, and they told two friends, and so on, and so on. And all yeah. those old, you know, TV commercials that you watch yeah. too many times because you're stuck in front of the TV, yeah. Yeah. Christy Brinkley and her prel. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I remember those ads, but that, you know, that's a whole other story. Anyway, <laughs> that's enough Moving of on. that. <laughs> <laughs> so the Black Breath seems to be a weapon they deploy when they want to cause that effect, that physical sickness and fear or despair. It's a tool in their arsenal, and they use it or not use it, uh, depending on the tactical needs of the mission. Yeah. It makes sense they'd use it in Bree on Mary. They're trying to intimidate. They're trying to cause fear, despair, and to leave a lasting impression on anybody that they attack in that town. 
and it makes sense at the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. It's just another one of these shock and awe tactics, and frankly, it's like a form of chemical warfare, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, if they didn't use it on Weathertop, which, like we said, they didn't, it's probably because they didn't want to. Intimidation was simply not their goal here. Yeah, and that makes sense, right? I mean, they would employ intimidation tactics if it serves the needs of the mission, whether that mission is finding the hobbit in Bree who has the ring or overtaking a city. Yeah. But on Weathertop, they're not seeking to intimidate, at least not in that way, because it just doesn't serve their needs at that time. They're not they're not looking for the ring on Weathertop. They've found it and they just yeah. need to get it back. That's right. You know, that's going to require a quick attack on the people who are standing in their way. Black Breath, which is a weapon that they would use to demoralize and I guess you could say to cause damage over time to DOT attack EverQuest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Borrowing a phrase from my old MMO days. Um, That's that's of no use right now. You know, they need to quickly kill our DOTs are of no more use now. (laughs) Fly. Uh, We required a a direct damage attack. That's right. Hunters, where are you? Yeah, we need a nuke. All right. (sighs) Sorry. EQ wizards, actually. In EverQuest, it was the wizards. That's right. They were. They were the glass cannons. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, no, they need to quickly kill or capture Frodo here. Yeah, that's true. Intimidation's not their point. Now, continuing with Weathertop, Casey writes to Bartleman and asking, my question is twofold. One, how did Aragorn know that a knife that strikes the Witch King would perish? And two, why does that then happen to the Morgul knife? I've heard that it was the morning sunlight on the blade or Aragorn's touch whether as the rightful king or just as a man, but it cannot be a coincidence that the blade lay in the grass for hours and then disappears as soon as someone touches it. Now, she says, This was the stroke of Frodo's sword, the only hurt that it did to his enemy, I fear, for it is unharmed, but all blades perish that pierce that dreadful king. Directly after this, Aragorn picks up the notched Morgul knife, which promptly perishes. I know the dramatic reason is because Tolkien was thinking of the scene in Beowulf, but are there in-universe answers for why this happens, Sean? Wow, that's a tough one. That yeah, is, because um, you know, anytime we're talking about you know the physics of Tolkien's world, especially when it comes to ring race stuff, it's going to well, be right. tough. But, but in response to the first question, how did Aragorn know that all blades perish that pierce that dreadful king? I suspect that's probably just a bit of lore he's picked up. Over the mm, course of his mm-hmm. what eighty-seven years, yeah, either either something he's he learned around. from Elrond, he has been around, and he has he's learned from Elrond. Uh, he's also spent time with Glorfindel, so it's very possible that he learned this from Glorfindel. In fact, I yeah. probably would bet on that because we know that Glorfindel has a history with the Witch King. We talked yes, about that does. in our last uh, Flight to the Ford episode. Glorfindel had fought alongside A.R. Nur against the Witch King of Angmar earlier in the Third Age. And, of course, he's the one who spoke that famous prophecy, you know, not by the hand of man will he fall. So, right. I mean, I, it's it's quite possible that Glorfindel and probably other people who fought in that battle had seen what happened to Blades that pierced the Witch King. He may have True. firsthand knowledge of this. So, so that's, you know, I, I would just suspect that, you know, Aragorn has picked up enough lore in his time. That's probably why he knows that. Fair enough. As for why the Morgul knife, the Witch King's own weapon, then perishes immediately after Aragorn says this, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, although it's a different weapon and a different circumstance, it does seem like it can't be a coincidence that this happens right when Aragorn picks it up. 
I'm not aware of anything that gives us a true in-universe explanation of why this happens. Casey had said something about it could be the morning sunlight on the blade. And I hadn't thought about that before, but that that actually sounds like a pretty good explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, Tolkien specifically mentions the growing light falling on the blade before it disintegrates. Yeah, yeah. I guess the other possibility is that it's Aragorn's touch, either because maybe because he's Isildur's heir or maybe just because he's one of the good guys. But since it doesn't disintegrate the instant he touches it, I, I tend to think the light may be more of a factor. I don't know. What do you think? Well, you know, we know that the Ringwraith's power is at its greatest at night in the dark. You know, Tolkien makes mm. that very clear uh, in the letter that he writes in response to the the Zimmerman script. Right. <laughs> so it wouldn't surprise <laughs> me at all <laughs> that letter cracks me up every time. Uh, oh, yeah. It, it really wouldn't shock me to learn that the Ringwraith's weapons, which are extremely powerful in the dark, are, as a result, utterly useless in the light. Yeah. I mean, honestly, we know that nothing evil can last long in the sun, right? I mean, this uh-huh. goes back to the Silmarillion. Oh, uh, yeah. With shadows, Morgoth hid himself and his servants from Arian, the glance of whose eyes they could not long endure. And so maybe yeah, the weapon, yeah. which is a, a thing of shadow magic, I know that's a clumsy word, but I don't know how else to say it. Okay. Um, you know, it is a, a thing of shadow. And so maybe it is similarly vulnerable to the sun. Yeah. And especially after it's already accomplished its purpose by stabbing a foe and leaving a splinter in him. So maybe that's it. Uh, I mean, I'm just speculating. Well, yeah. As for as for out-of-universe answers, uh, Casey's absolutely right. Tolkien was trying to evoke Beowulf. Um, we did talk about that in our first Flight to the Ford episode mm-hmm. last season. I think so, yeah. The sword Beowulf uses to kill Grendel's mother melts away, which Tolkien explained in a 1963 letter, which was uh, referenced by Hammond and Skull, I believe, by saying, yeah. the melting of the sword blade has a dramatic quality, which is attractive to a storyteller and makes it linger in the memory. But the dramatic effect is the only real connection between the melting of the Witch King's knife and the withering of Meriadoc's sword from the burial mound and the Anglo-Saxon poem. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that is definitely the out-of-universe answer. Tolkien just thought it was a, a cool image from Beowulf, mm-hmm. and he wanted to bring it in for that reason. Yeah, he was um, attracted to a storyteller, yeah. Yep. In-universe, uh, my money's on the light. Yeah. So, there Makes you go. Makes the most sense. Well... Finally, folks, we have to end our first Parliament's Bag segment of the new season with a really good one. And yeah, we've got we it. Do. <laughs> uh, a listener named Ella wrote to us with this, and I just love it. Yep. Ella says, I am only 12, but I really love your podcasts. Aww. They've given me a lot of depth on Tolkien's life and the Silmarillion. And I have a just for fun question. If you could have three of the fellowship on your side and the rest of them attacking you, which three would you have? She specifically says, this is including Boromir. Okay. So, okay. Awesome. That, that is, is such a such a great fun question. That and is fun. Uh, first of all, Ella, thank you so much for listening. I am yeah. so glad that you found our podcast and that we are enhancing your reading of Tolkien's works. Um, and I hope this love of Tolkien's work is something that you'll carry with you for your entire life. So uh Absolutely. So hopefully we can hopefully we can help that along for you. Absolutely. And the fact that you're reading the Silmarillion at twelve is pretty impressive. So uh <laughs> kudos to Absolutely you. Absolutely amazing. I was I was definitely not trying that at, at, at twelve. So <laughs> No, yeah. no. But thank you, Ella. We're really glad you're enjoying the show and we're super excited to be able to answer your your fun question in this episode. So Sean, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you start. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that. Um okay. 
So, three of the fellowship on my side, and the yeah. other six attacking me. So who uh, goes where? That's no good either way. No, no, it's not. But okay, obviously, I want to have all four hobbits attacking me. Oh well, um, yeah, because yeah. because they're easier to fend off than the rest of the fellowship. I mean, Absolutely. I'm sorry, but it's true. Reach. So, right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I'm not a tall man, but I think I could hold a hobbit off. <laughs> So that that means I'm choosing three out of the remaining five of Gandalf, Aragorn, Boromir, Legolas, and Gimli. Uh, Boromir is a noble warrior, uh-huh. and I'm not I'm not going to discredit him just because of some poor choices later on. Fair enough. But I do think Aragorn could best him in a fight, and I kind of feel like I can only take one of those. I know that's not one of the rules, but I just kind of feel like uh, I should yeah, only take one. I don't one. know why. Okay, all right. I don't know, but I, I just feel like I should. I don't know. Maybe I just okay. want to see those two fight. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm going to take Aragorn over Boromir. Um, as for Gandalf, I mean, I suppose I'd want to have Gandalf counseling me before a fight. Uh-huh. But during the fight, when I know that he's forbidden to reveal himself in a form of majesty or to seek to rule the wills of men and elves by open display of power. Yeah. Well, that doesn't sound very useful in no. a fight. So no, it doesn't. I guess I'm going to let him go on the other side, and that means I'd have the three hunters, Aragorn, huh. Legolas, and Gimli. I mean, come on. Honestly, their reputation precedes them, so I think yeah, I'm pretty solid enough. with those three. Yeah, what I about you? you? might be. Well, you used my logic before I had a chance, so there's that. But you know, <laughs> I'm, in, I'm good at that. About the hobbits, I mean, even Sam, the yeah. mighty elven warrior in the eyes of a few orcs later on, he just isn't up to the <laughs> yeah. task. So yeah, you no. got to take three out of the other five, I think. But, you know, Book Legolas isn't quite the acrobatic, all-world, mumakill-slaying, shield-surfing machine that the films made him out to be. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, You I'm, do have a good point there. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. I'm going to take Aragorn, Boromir, and Gimli. I think those are the I mean, flat-out, you know, you got a ranger, uh, a, a warrior, and a guardian right there. You know, you've got three yeah. combat classes. Unless, of course, it's Gandalf the White. In which case, Aragorn, Boromir, and Gandalf. Again, because Reach. <laughs> yeah, it, it is hard to argue against Gandalf the White. Oh, oh Gandalf I mean, the White I, I, is on my side. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking pre-Balrog. But, but Fellowship, yeah, no. right. And that's the thing. She, yeah. she says Fellowship, so yeah. I've got to think Gandalf the Grey. Yeah. Yeah. But Legolas, I mean, come on. You know, the the range would be useful. And yeah. He can run if light over grass and If it's a fight leave. where we start, well, that's the thing. If it's a fight where we start, you know, a quarter mile apart, yeah, maybe I take Legolas and he can get a few shots yeah. in before we get, you know, close to melee. But if it's like, you know, uh, we're in, uh, you know, the chamber of Mazobul and, you know, we're we're already within melee range, nah. Let that, yeah, let the, yeah, let no. that, uh, let that, that little skinny bow, you know, get, uh, get beat by <laughs> the, the slender bow, the slender yeah. bow, get beat by, <laughs> by the axe of Gimli. Yeah, no, I, I can see that, but definitely, if there's range involved, you want Legolas on your side. Because oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, what's what's Boromir going to do? Blow his horn? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's got a shield. Granted, it's a little there, small. That is true. Yeah, that is true. Anyway, <laughs> hey, well, it's folks, big enough. It is. It's well for one. <laughs> <laughs> Use it on me, anyway. Boromir. Don't get hit with the oh, arrow. No. Oh, too late. Oh, oh, don't get hit with another arrow. No, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not a third one. Dang no, it. come on. Oh, man. Oh. This just isn't getting better for you, is it? Too soon. Too soon. As in before it actually happens. All right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Folks, that does wrap it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Uh, please be sure to join us again next time when we, um, well, well, we frankly put off starting book two for another episode because next week <laughs> it's time again for some of our patrons to join us to put us on the spot in our quarterly questions after nightfall. You never know what we're going to say because we never know what we're going to be asked. Uh, <laughs> it's always true. a fun time and it is a fertile garden for future corrections. So oh, you that is it. true. Fertile garden indeed. Uh, as always, though, we want to thank all of you listening and a very special thank you to our patrons at the Kierdance Contribution Tier. To May in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamsin in Minnesota, Emily in Texas, Chad in Texas, Lance in New Jersey, Paul in Colorado, and Jerry in Texas. Thank you all so very much. Make sure you don't miss a single episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Subscribe to the show through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing as always, don't forget to send your questions, comments, and most of all, what you're looking forward to in book two of The Lord of the Rings. I've got two words for you. Wingless Balrogs. Oh, to, yeah, bring it on. That's right. To Barlaman at theprancingponypodcast.com. Look, we know Barlaman's not always punctual with the mail, but huh, hardly. send it in and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And hey, yeah. your question or comment may be featured on an upcoming show. Well, folks, however long we've had, it has been far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time. Farewell, friends. <laughs> <laughs>